0: The expert. Today, we are very pleased to have uh, Dr. Eddie James speaking to us about applying in-depth studies of antigen specific T-cells to understand disease progression and response to therapy. He's coming to us from the BRI in Seattle. And just a little bit about him. He earned his PhD in biochemical engineering at the University of Washington. After an, inter- an internship at Zy- Zymogenetics, he joined the BRI or the Benaroya Research Institute to manage their tetramer core And he currently uh, is leading several projects related to the role of epitope-specific T-cells in autoimmune diseases. Particular interests of his include uh, studying how protein modifications and beta cell stress contribute to the breakdown of tolerance and applying in-depth phenotype analysis to investigate changes that occur during autoimmune disease progression and in response to immune therapies. He's a member and co-leader of a working group aimed at improving disease staging this is a critical uh, path really, Uh, disease staging of T1D patients through the use of uh, validated biomarkers and participates in multiple uh, collaborative projects which characterize T cells in autoimmune disease using at-risk individuals and clinical trial participants. This is a a real strength of the BRI up there in Seattle. Um, And he also is very involved in performing sensitive and complex immunological assays using blood samples from variable sources so that's, uh, he's really directly on the human immunology um, front line. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, Eddie. I really appreciate it. And uh, we have a really interesting uh, group in our audience. So I can't wait to hear what you have to share with us.
1: Well, thanks for the introduction and for the uh, the invitation to present. Uh, it is a privilege. Uh, you guys see my title and I guess, I, do people usually ask questions as we go or do we save those for the end?
0: Um, whatever you prefer.
1: Okay. Well, I guess if you have a if you have a burning question, you know, feel free to to raise your hand or however however we do that. Um, yeah,
0: that may, you can raise your hand and I'll, yeah. I'll I'll get it. Otherwise, we'll get them at the end. Sounds perfect. Yeah.
1: And some so some of the content is a little on the technical side, but uh, I, I've tried to make it accessible just in case we have you know a mix of people.
0: Nice. But okay.
1: If if anything isn't clear, feel free to stop me. Sounds good. Um, so I'll begin just with a little slide to kind of, this is kind of an, an homage to what uh, the mission of our lab. And that is, we're really trying to break uh, the cycle, you know, that leads to type one diabetes. And the way we think of the disease is, really, there's some trigger that's still unknown. Uh, some people suspect they are. could be viruses, could be diets, but in any case, something kicks off an autoimmune response against the beta cells in the pancreas. Uh, they get selectively attacked and destroyed. And what we see, this as a multi-wave process where basically you have an initial attack, this leads to dead and impaired beta cells. Uh, this frees more antigens, which get brought around to, to the lymph nodes, you know, engaging a second wave of T cells. And basically this circle amplifies and ramps up until enough beta cells are destroyed that you get diagnosed disease. And we see this as, an, as, as, as you know a circle where there's, there's nexus points that can be treated as well. And so my lab is collaborating with several others to, to work on things like engineered Tregs, uh, to to help restore the initial break intolerance and looking at various inhibitors uh, that would would halt the generation of, of of and and release of new epitopes and then immune modulators that help shut down you know the ramping up of of T cell responses that that really spins us around this loop and so you know we try to be really active partners I, I always like to mention that uh, this is personal for me I have two nieces with type one diabetes. And so you know, fighting this disease is not just an academic exercise for me. It's something that really matters to me at a personal level as well. And I, I think that affects how I do my science.
0: Yeah, I think that does. And I think the, your commitment to it. Um, and we uh, here at Sugar Science completely uh, understand that and uh, are all in as well.
1: Great. And so what some people don't appreciate, uh, uh, but you know, maybe this is not news to this audience, but uh yeah, you know, yeah. You know, the diagnosis of type of diabetes marked by this arrow here. you know, you know it represents a, a breaking point where there has been enough decline in beta cell mass and beta cell function that you know insulin production is no longer sufficient to control blood sugar levels. But the process doesn't halt at diagnosis. Uh, yeah, the beta cells are, insulin production isn't zero at diagnosis, you know, very often, unless you have an extremely fulmin- form of the disease, and, and beta cell function continues to decline after onset, and it can be, you know, years or even decades later that someone really zeroes out in their ability to, to produce insulin. Uh, this is measured in the blood by a, 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 a test called the C-peptide measurement. C-peptide is, it's the inert, you know, peptide is cleaved out of insulin as it's Process from pro-insulin to insulin, and so that that's our, our best way of measuring wh- whether there is residual beta cell function or not. And a, an important point in today's talk also is that subjects with type 2 diabetes tend to fall into two broad categories, and you know that's shown by you know this the line plot here that my arrow is hovering over now, where there's this blue line and this red line, and you can see the blue line and red line are groups, and in between are the spaghetti plots that are actually real people. So you know people defy groupings, but you know. In concept there, there's people that at diagnosis seem to rapidly lose their residual beta cell function and there's people at diagnosis that tend to maintain it for quite some time before it finally tapers off. I mentioned this and you know we we, we think this is an important thing to understand because it turns out that this matters
0: yeah so, and that also yeah. just sort of uh, goes right along with the whole um, story of endotypes, right that there's really there's there's some very um well characterized endotypes that are emerging
1: exactly and you know there is you know as as shown by this this review article here that there there if you're diagnosed at a young age you tend to fall more into what, what I'll call this red group this low c peptide group whereas if you're diagnosed at older ages you tend to fall more into this green area this what I call the high c peptide group Um, but it's not just binary. You can see over here, you know, there are young subjects that are still in the green and there are older diagnosed subjects that are still in this red. But if you're diagnosed above this threshold value of of, of 0.2 nanomoles per liter of C-peptide, it's been well documented by multiple studies now that you have fewer complications, you have lower hemoglobin A1C, you have less risk of hypoglycemia, basically everything goes better for you if you're in that group. And It's partially because of that, that for many years, the gold standard for intervention trials and type 1 diabetes is preservation of C-peptide. That's what the FDA considers this to be a viable endpoint. And that's because it actually matters in the life of the patient. You know, we can't necessarily rewind time and give you all of your beta cell function back, although groups are working on that. And that that would make a a cool, you know, (laughs) talk for later. Maybe you've already hit on that in previous talks, but, you know, but Preserving what you already have or preserving new beta cells that you might engraft in, in is, is really important. And so, the way my lab tackles this is we are experts at using a, a reagent called an HLA tetramer. And what HLA tetramers are, these are the reagents that they, they use the natural you know, HLA molecules in the immune system, which APCs use to present peptides to T cells. Uh, we make them in recombinant forms and we cluster them around a, a fluorescent streptavidin core. Uh, the reason we use tetramers is because it turns out that a monomer or a dimer doesn't have a stable enough interaction to stick for a long time. But if you tetramerize these recombinant HLA molecules, they'll actually stick to a T cell for, you know, 30, 60, 90 minutes, which is long enough to take it upstairs and do a flow cytometry experiment. Uh, through a broad series of efforts you know some of which i have you know reviewed in an article that came out a few days ago people have painstakingly defined which fragments of beta cell proteins are recognized by the immune system and if we now pair that with testosterone technology what we can do is we can take an hla molecule that matches the patient of interest we can load it up with a peptide that we know the immune system sees and we can use that to specifically label just T-cells that are beta cell reactive. And we think this is important because when a person has an autoimmune disease, you know, 99.999 plus of their T-cells appear by every measure that we can do to be more or less normal. It's, the auto, it's that minor fraction of autoactive T-cells that is doing something wrong. Or as you'll see later in this talk, it's a fraction of that fraction that's doing something wrong. But to see the individual trees rather than the forest, we need to be able to label the Ns specific T-cells and ask questions about them. And that's what my lab does. And so what we have done over the 20 years that I've been at BRI is we've done from doing very simple flow cytometry experiments. When I first joined BRI, we could do four colors at a time. We now have these very sophisticated flow cytometers where you can do even 30 different measurements at, at one time. And so, you know, that's, you know, this, this box here, that's high dimensional flow cytometry. And so if one of those colors, MERS, we can label beta cell reactive T cells. If those other colors are different immune receptors of interest, we can bin those T cells into various functional phenotypes based on known surface markers and, and ask about questions about them. But excitingly, we have more recently paired that with, you know, gene expression profiling through a technique called RNA-seq. And for those who are laymen, i like to say, uh, I think of RNA-seq as kind of like when you hit control, delete on your computer, and you can open up that second tab that shows every process that your computer has running. Yeah, That's what RNA-Seq basically does, is it allows you to crack the cell and ask, you know, you know, you get a list of all the transcriptional programs that that cell is running at one time. And so we can, when we combine that with the specificity of flow cytometry and, and HLA testimers, we can, you know, in-depth and important information about you know what's going on in the T cell, and finally we compare that with with TCR sequencing. And again, the, the the T cell receptor is you know to a first approximation unique to each T cell. You know and and it, it it determines you know which peptide that T cell sees and with which affinity. You know what activates it. And so by doing TCR clonotyping, we can basically you know you know barcode the individual cells based on their unique identity and specificity. And so if we can complete this triangle, we can ask very sophisticated and important questions, you know, high resolution questions about the immune system and how it's behaving. And so our goal then is to apply these techniques, you know, generally as a lab to important sample sets. And what I'm going to talk to you about today are studies that we're, that we're doing and understanding this phenomenon of C-peptide loss in subjects of established type 1 diabetes. And so our goal for this project, which we hope will be published soon, uh, is doing single cell RNA sequencing, you know, in combination with HLA tetamers and T-cell receptor analysis on samples from subjects with established type of diabetes, who at the time of sampling had either high or low levels of residual C-peptide. And so we're doing tetramer analysis by flow, TCR sequencing, single cell RNA-seq, to really characterize an immune fingerprint in these cells that associates with having C-peptide loss or C-peptide maintenance, because we think understanding that is important.
0: Then yeah, we and that's a great um, approach. I wonder uh, how many sample, how many subjects uh, or samples do you, are you looking at in that uh, context?
1: So I'm gonna get into that in the next couple of slides, but to give you a quick question. So, you know, f- for the in-depth analysis we've done uh, 10 subjects per group. Mm-hmm. Um, for the broader, just basic flow cytometry we are able to do much larger groups. And you know, the reason is the, the single cell analysis is still very expensive. Yeah. Um, we're streamlining it, but you know, especially at the time that we began this work, you know, doing it in a lot of cells, it was cost prohibitive and and we we estimated that a group size of 10 would give us you know, enough initial insights to to justify this project and you know to motivate further work and further funding. And so that's that's where we landed for this. And so yeah you know, th- this is this is that study cohort. And so here we have 10 rapid progressors, 10 slow progressors. Uh, and again, we're, we're using that threshold level uh, of, of 0. 0.017, which runs up to 0. 0.02. You know, in animals per liter of C-peptide, and we to define people as rapid progressors, we wanted them to have lost, you know, measurable C-peptide, you know, being you know, below this measurable threshold, with, within, you know, a, a relatively, you know, close time to diagnosis. And so, the, all these subjects were, had an, an average of, you know, 2.8 years from diagnosis and they had already lost basically all, all their measurable C-peptide. So kind of an extreme group for slow progressors, you know, we didn't want to call people slow progressors if they were about to lose all their C-peptide. And so we want people to be, you know, well above that detectable threshold. So these subjects were anywhere from 0.14 to 0.58. And these subjects were all at least five years post diagnosis. And so these are subjects who had maintained C-peptide and they've been maintaining it for a while. So again, another extreme phenotype. And so our hope was that by comparing these subjects that we gain some important insights about how anacin-specific T cell responses might be different in subjects that rapidly lose their C peptide versus those that are able to keep it for a while. Because again, these are subjects that tend to do you know, really badly and have you know, very brittle diabetes like my older niece or who do better and have an easy time you know, with glycemic control like my younger niece. And so we began with just some very basic assays, you know, unsophisticated assays, just, just to make sure that there were, that there weren't just you know, simple, easy to detect differences between these two groups. And so we took a well described panel of HLA class one tetramers shown here. We didn't develop this panel; this was actually developed by Bart Roop's you know group, you know, well over a decade now. And these are you know, just, you know, six well well-defined you know, class one epitopes from what we consider to be kind of the primary autoantigens in type 1 diabetes. So we have the best epitope from GAD, IGRP, IA2, preproinsulin, um, one from the mature insulin B chain, and another from the zinc transporter 8. And you know, these also correspond to the major autoantibody specificities. These are well-behaved tetramers that have been shown to stain reproducibility in subjects that have type 1 diabetes. And so we can visualize the fairly rare T cells for each of these specificities. And we can either count them individually by flow, or we can pool t- them together and advance them for single-cell analysis. And first, we wanted to ask just a very dumb question, and that is that, you know, is the only difference between our high and low c groups how many T-cells that they have? And as is shown in this little, little scatter plot down here, there's a slight trend towards people with rapid progression having, a, a, you know, a few more antigen-specific T-cells. You know, this is in cells per 100,000. So these are pretty rare cells, but there's a lot of overlap between these groups. And so it, it isn't a case where you know if you have very few T cells you do better, and if you have a lot more T cells you do worse. It's just if you have if you have rapid loss of C peptide, you have a little bit more you know of, of a high number of T cells, but it's not super convincing. We also wanted to ask about you know kind of the distribution of the specificities. And so we bend the, the T cells amongst the different the six different specificities and just kind of ask, you know. Is there some you know evil epitope that's more frequent than all the others? And you know, comparing a rapid group to a slow group, the, the and expressing the freak, the average frequencies as a pie chart, it was there was a surprising conservation where the you know the hierarchy of these T cells tended to be pretty, you know, pretty consistent, you know, where IGRP tended to be the lowest, GAD tended to be the highest, and there really wasn't you know one epitope that stood out as as being you know something that might might be driving rapid loss or, or slow loss of C peptide. We even asked whether, you know, there was just more generalized diversity between the cells by saying, you know, if, you know, if, a, if a subject's, you know, T-cells are, you know, 20 marbles, you know, do they, you know, do they tend to be spread out amongst all six of these bins or are they grouped within just two or three of these bins? And there's, there's some sophisticated diversity measures you can calculate for that. And again, our rapid group tended to have a slightly higher diversity index than our slow group, but it wasn't super convincing. And so that reassured us that to really understand what was going on with the T-cells. It's not just a numbers game. We have to look at the character of these cells and we have to look at their transcriptional programs. And so that's exactly what we did. And so we turned the crank on our single cell RNA sequencing pipeline, where basically, again, we stain cells with tetramer, we stain cells with a, a panel of well described uh, surface markers to, to, to aid us in classifying those cells. And basically, we sorted single cells on, onto plates using an in house system where we could simultaneously, you know, Entrap these cells and send them for, you know, RNA seq analysis. We can assemble their their T cell receptors, and we can we can capture their service marker expression for all of ours of interest. And we can cross index all three of those data types and ask questions about what differentiates our slow and rapid groups. And to make a long story a little bit shorter, what we found. Yeah, you know, is that you know what was the most interesting in these data sets was it was actually their their overall single single cell RNA sequencing profiles and I don't know how acquainted this audience is with single single cell RNA sequencing data but the the, the para- there's thousands of parameters that you get out of the single cell RNA data set and that's that's something that's it it's difficult to wrap you know a mind around is this huge matrix of values yeah you know, but uh, there are these projections called UMAP that basically it it it, it It takes this highly dimensionalized data and it projects it onto a a planar surface so that you, so that where where each spec is an individual cell, and it uses you know these UMAP parameters to help define you know relationships between these cells such that if, if two cells are close to each other on these UMAP projections, they have highly similar properties, if they're far apart from one another on these UMAP projections, they have very different properties. And then the program it then defines the reasons on this UMAP as clusters, where clusters are basically T cells that are near enough neighbors to one another that they share phenotypic traits. And so that's exactly what our analysis platform does. And so it took, you know, you know, the, the thousands of cells that we obtained by single sorting cells from these higher C peptide higher, C peptide low subjects, and it sorted them into this, this UMAP landscape of T cells and, and, it, and it clustered them. And what really came out of this is that you know there is the, you know there's these distinct you know phenotypic clusters of cells, and of course the next task then is to figure out okay what do these clusters mean, and so you know the way we really grapple with that is doing things like overlaying what we learn from the protein expression onto these cells, and a, a, a good marker that we like to look at are, are are things like you know CCR7 and CD45RA because these are markers that allow us to tell how antigens experienced a cell is. And so that, that enables us to kind of draw you know a, 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 a gradient on our on our cell from more differentiated to less differentiated T cells. And looking at C 5 RA and CCR7 expression, what be you know, clear to us is that you know, so this upper corner here you know, is is a is a is the is the least differentiated area. And this lower quadrant here is is, is the most highly differentiated area. And what stood out, out to us is interesting is that you know if if you if you look at this like a, like a kind of a developmental stream, what we can see is that you know from the most naive state there is this upper path, and there is this lower path of differentiation, and that was very interesting to us. Uh, we looked a little bit further at our markers. I'll advance here to the next slide, and you know, one thing that we looked at was you know the markers want and, and Tidget are exhausted markers that. that that tell you uh, that a T cell has basically become burned out and become inert. And previous studies have shown that if exhausted T cells seem to be protected, you know, in, in autoimmune diseases. And what we saw then is that, you know, there definitely is kind of, you know, this upper branch and then this lower pool here seems to be kind of a a path towards exhaustion. Whereas the the lower branch in the central region seems to be a more non-exhausted path. And so there seems to be this fate where a T cell starts, you know, at this point being non-differentiated. And, and it can be driven along one or two paths. It can be driven along a path, to become a fairly inert, exhausted cell, or it can be driven along a path where it can come to rest as more of an effector cell, or there seems to be this reservoir you know, in between the two paths. And so we, those are phenomena that we wanted to zero in on. And so this kind of shows that, that you know, that same cartoon that we, we seem to have this a, a exhausted path and this effector path. And this is held up by other markers. And so we, if you look th- you know, at th- things like like grandzymes, you know, and chemokine receptors that, that seem to illustrate more of a, you know, effector leg cell, if you look at, you know, molecules like lag3 or EMs that, that seem to signal more of, a, of an exhausted signature, there definitely is, you know, basically two different fates where these cells can come to rest you know exhibited by different clusters. And so, of course, the the next obvious question is: Okay, we have these different cell states, anywhere from naive to exhausted or effector cells, or this weird reservoir state. Um, what differentiates our high and low uh, low C peptide group? And what we saw then is that you know there's this exhausted axis, you know this EOMS axis, and it's hard to see in this in this plot. Uh, we have blocks here that that represent um, higher C peptide, low, but. It, I'll digest this for you in this, in this next slide. What we saw is that you know, if, if we take a look at the cluster proportions between our, our high and low groups, uh, we can see that our C peptide high group versus C peptide low groups they they differ with respect to these three key clusters. And what this really boils down to is that yeah, you know, our more you know, exhausted clusters seem to be overrepresented in our c-peptide high group like this this cluster eight whereas there's these, there's these there's these bad clusters this cluster seven and cluster one that seem to be overrepresented in our low c-peptide group and so this really shows that there, there really are these good guy cells and these bad guy cells that seem to differentiate c-peptide high from c-peptide low which i thought was pretty fascinating mm, it is. And so we can also recapitulate this by using a previously published module called this EOMS module. And again, in our slow progressors that maintain the C-peptide, we have this very high level of this EOMS exhaustion module, whereas we have a a, a lower expression of that module for our rapid progressors. And so the story really seems to be holding up that that there's there's these two developmental fates for autoreactive T cells. And if your T cells get pushed in the wrong direction, you do worse. We also wanted to ask about T cell receptors. And again, if you recall, you know, a few slides back when we made our hypothesis about this test, we really thought that one component of this was gonna be that T cells that were more driven, you know, might change your fate. And so we were surprised to see that if we looked at, you know, diversity or, or, or you know, clonal expansion in these T cells, which is shown by this circus plot, you know, whenever T cells are sharing a T cell receptor and their sister clones, then they're connected by these little arches. And so you you can see these little patches of sharing. You've got this red sharing and this pink and dark blue and light blue sharing. And we saw a few interesting phenomena. Number one, we saw that there's almost no sharing between individuals because each of these colors is an individual. And so people, they they seem to have personalized individual repertoires of these cells. Mm. But we were a little surprised to see that the amount of sharing didn't really differ between our rapid and slow groups. And so the level of turnover of these cells, you know, the degree to which they've been pushed by antigen seems to be fairly similar in the solution. That may be why when we did a more simple phosphatometry assays, why they seem to have similar numbers of these cells, which we all thought was pretty interesting. But the other thing that was, you know, the other thing that we noted was that, you know, this airline plot shows basically T cells that have the same T cell receptor, but, and it connects them with lines on this airline plot. And what we can see is that not surprisingly, T-cells that are expanded seem to be not not in this naive part, but in this differentiated part, which makes teological sense. But what we notice is that T-cells that have the exact same T-cell receptor can live in different areas. And so it's the T-cell's life experience and that specificity that drives the character that it takes on. And so that means that basically... That means that any T cell specificity is a candidate to be dysregulated and cause disease, or any T cell receptor is a candidate to be re-regulated and, and to be more inert or maybe even hinder disease.
0: A lot of plasticity. Can, yeah. um, one question. Um, did you color your UMAP by your two groups, rapid versus slow, coming from University of Florida?
1: Um we have we have done that. I, I don't have that slide in this presentation. Uh, and you know, but you know the dots do segregate. Okay. But you know, it's, I, I took that, that analysis up It's difficult to see by eye because again, these, these differences are subtle, yeah. mm. but yes. Okay. And so kind of where we've landed you know, as far as our conclusions from this study, is really that, you know, here, you know, based on the single cell analysis, what we have seen is that, you know, there seems to be two distinct stick development, developmental trajectories that, 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 that T, the CD8 positive T cells that are autoactive can take on. And this third kind of reservoir state that we're kind of interested in. And that increased, you know, exhausted phenotype is associated with higher residual seed peptide. Uh, we see that islet antigen reactive cells are, are in, that are in, both in effector and ex- ex- exhausted clusters are, are, are more expanded and less diverse than naive cells, which isn't surprising. And that more expanded and less diverse cells were you know, slightly associated with higher levels of C-peptide, but the, 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 the differences weren't as impressive as we expected. And to us, this motivates interventional strategies designed to drive T-cells to exhaustion. And so in, in the last few minutes, I want to talk about kind of what we're doing to work on that and so for our ongoing work we're getting t-cells from patients that are being studied and at risk subjects they're being treated with a drug called teplizumab teplizumab is an anti-cd3 antibody that's basically designed to you know deviate t-cells to a less pathogenic phenotype and this drug has been shown in in just kind of studies of global T-cells that one of its effects is that it can deviate cells to more of an exhaustive phenotype. And so we are able to get a pilot set of samples on you know, 12, 12 T1-day patients that we measured either at baseline or post-treatment with teplizumab. And you know, this is a very preliminary study, but what's I think exciting is that we're seeing a lot of the same things. And that is, again, the shape of this UMAP is different, but you know, when we do single cell analysis of, of these pre and post treatment cells from these studies, we see some of the same fates where we see you know, in, in this case, an, an, a naive T cell, and we see a trajectory that can work its way around to either an exhausted fate or to a more effector like fate. And so again, there's two branches to this stream. And there even seems to be the side group that seems to be parked right between naive and effector, and the, this may be that reservoir state. So there's some agreement there. And what's interesting is that when we separate out here, we did either virus specific cells or out specific cells. And again, yeah, this, this cluster three is our, is our exhausted cluster and light blue is pre-treatment, dark blue is post-treatment. And we see the cells being pushed by toplizumab more into this exhausted cluster. And interestingly, this cluster four is our most highly effector-like cluster. And we see cells being pushed by diplizumab out of that cluster. And yeah, so it seems it seems like there's an inversion event happening here. And then yeah, our goal, it, our it goal is- It
0: certainly does. Uh, there's a, another question. How do you plan to control variability due to individuals' ages?
1: Um, so that's, difficult um the way we're trying to grapple with is right now since our n is really low and since when you're looking at clinical trial samples you have to take who you can get uh, yeah. and that is that we're we're trying to basically um use use mathematical modeling to regress that out of, of our of our signal mm-hmm. but it, that, that is a challenge and that's and that, that's the biggest problem with these low n type studies is i mean again you know when you're talking to trial that trying to get samples you know 20 samples seems like a lot, but then when you sit down to actually do an in-depth analysis, 20 samples doesn't seem like much at all. How?
0: What would what would pave the way for getting more samples? I know obviously the um, T1D exchange was, um, you know, working in that space to try to connect people with trials, et cetera, but how, how could you really expand that uh, pool of participants? Um, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, to me, I think the, I mean, I, to be honest, I have found you know, trial that and some of the other groups to be, I mean, given the limited resources that we have and the large number of people that want them, I, I, I feel like they have actually been pretty generous with, mm-hmm. and so I, I don't fault them at all. I, I think what's really needed to build up to the larger end studies that we need to completely crack these questions is, you know, to have a project that is designed from the very beginning to include these types of in-depth readouts as, as part of the trial rather than ex post facto, because, yeah. you know, the, you know, the key is, you know, basically, you know, connecting a, a, enough samples and having them ready to go, you know, to, to do the in-depth analysis.
0: And what other disease state, uh, you know, has that as a working model right now to your mind? Any?
1: Um, I mean, if, in my experience, the gold standard is rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. Um, where yeah you know, we, we we yeah actually we're just about to publish a paper where we we followed you know you know antibody positive individuals and in, in our race, it's an antibody called CCP which is an anti you know cyclic citinated protein antibody that you know like when ty- like type one diabetes it precedes you know diagnosis by about ten years. Um, and you know there was you know this, this robust multi-year funding to, that allowed a collection of, of samples from these at-risk subjects at, at multiple time points over a three-year period, and then we were we were able to do you know tetramer analysis and you know antibody analysis and you know, other omics analysis on that grid of, of samples for a fairly large end of subjects. I think it was something like forty subjects per group.
0: Hmm. Is that driven? Was that an NIH-driven grant?
1: Um, It was actually a a private company.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is why we invite industry to these talks. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. Um, Okay, yeah, sorry to get off on a segue, but I do oh. think that's a very important point because I've heard it a few times that, you know, the samples are so precious. How can we get more of a You know, a a flow coming in to these new um, to be to be looked at in these new ways.
1: Yeah, it is, and I'll I'll toggle ahead just because that was pretty much my last slide. Um, And so, you know, parked up here is my acknowledgments. And so, I I do want to give props to my post, formerly postdoc, now staff scientist, Haina Wynn, that did all the hands-on work as far as doing the tetramer staining and sorting out these cells, Uh, and Gabrielle Blanek, who first implemented this class one panel when when she joined the lab. And then, of course, our genomics core, our systems of immunology. Yeah. This whole pipeline was done by Peter Lindsley and Alex Hugh is the one that actually did the analysis for this project. Uh, samples were selected by our BRI interventional immunology program by, you know, by Kate Speak and Carly Greenbaum. And then, of course, our clinical core and my other co-investigators that uh, have done this work. And yeah, now I can release you guys to ask more questions (laughs) if we haven't haven't hit on them all.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, fantastic. That's great. That was really interesting. And um, we gave a shout out to that new paper you talked about to to our wider audience. Hopefully people will pick up on it, take a look at it. Feel free to, um, you know, unmute yourself or raise your hand and I will unmute you if you have any questions here for Dr. James. I mean, in terms of sort of this tetramer work and the work that you're doing to really kind of dive in to specify what's happening during the prodrome. What's happening over there in Europe? Nodia is sort of, you know, they've got the UK Biobank. I know, you know, Tim Tree's heavily involved in the T cell world there. Uh, are they are they going after this with the same, I don't wanna say fervor, but you know, in the same way as uh, you guys are doing this in your laboratory? Um, I would say,
1: I mean, <clears throat> the short answer would be yes. Um, mm-hmm. There, there's a bit of a lack of consensus about exactly what the best assays are to apply to these sample sets.
0: Yes, that's what I was trying to get. And, yeah,
1: and that, you know, that becomes difficult. I mean, there and it's because there are there are pros and cons, you know, to any assay. I mean, it, you know, something like an LE spot, I mean, you know, people wouldn't have been enthusiastically doing LE spots for the past, you know, 25 to 30 years if they didn't tell you something important, you know, and they do. Uh, there are some of these more novel um you know short-term activation assays you know the so-called you know cd154 cd69 or the cd25 ox40 assays uh that you know are better at casting a, a broad net and giving you a kind of a, a larger group of autoreactive cells uh but you know the cells that come out of them maybe aren't quite as as cleanly positive as something like a tetramer and so you know it's it, be, it becomes a difficult proposition to decide, you know, what's the best assay? And, yeah, you know, to be honest, maybe that's even the wrong question because, you know, there's the old saying that you, you, you can't let perfection be the enemy of the good. And I think <laughs> there are some degrees to which we kind of wring our hands and say, okay, we, we don't want to waste these samples until we have the perfect assay. Yeah, but, well, you're never going to have the perfect assay. At some point, you just need to crack the vials, you know, use the best assay that you have, be as smart as you can and, you know, learn, learn what you can but how, yeah. how
0: might the 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 bigger how might the role of bioinformatics uh and ultimately like ai come in to look at these heterogeneous assays in new ways is anybody doing that or is that something that might be done in the future
1: i think that there there is room for a lot more creative analysis than what we have been done so far and again you know i'm so i'm I'm, I'm pleased by what I've seen in the field as far you know, not only our bioinformatics department, but, you know, other high level programs across the U S and around the world have, are doing an increasingly good job at, you know, getting the immunologist and the bioinformatician in the same room and, and more and more speaking the same language. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, we use the analysis methods that are, you know, available and vetted, you know, to analyze their data sets and then you know if that reveals you know a, you know a, you know a useful insight then you know we publish it and, and follow it forward with more mechanistic studies or you know maybe maybe it inspires you know the the development or or, or testing of, of another of a of a drug if you're really lucky and then Although, in theory, that data could be reanalyzed later or meta-analysis could happen. I, th- I, th- I think we need to do better at that. I think, I think that you know, follow-up analysis and meta-analysis is pretty important. Yeah. I, I, see, I see a hand up.
0: Yep, and here's Yang. Uh, go ahead, unmute yourself, Yang Guy. Hi, Eddie. Hi. As you know, you said, as a fraction of cells are autoreactive, so they're very minor, small percentage, which make it technology really not that friendly for most of our immunologists. Is there any way you guys are thinking how to improve uh, this, make it more friendly, repro- reproducible for different labs?
1: I mean, that's that's something that we're working on. And again, I mean, you may be aware that, we, you know you know, when we implemented this HLA class one, you know, assay in our, in our lab, one of the one of the first things that we did is we cooperated with five other labs to do multi-center a testing of that assay. Yeah. And you know, the unfortunate truth was that, you know, at that time, you know, we didn't see, you know, really tight technical. You know, consistency uh, of those measurements across the five labs. Um, I can tell you that we, we've learned from that study and we're, we're about to submit a, a, a study, a, a class two tetramer validation that we did where we actually see much tighter replicates. And so I, I think, you know, some of it was down just to having, you know, you know, reliable reagents, you know, you know, rigorously, you know, written SOPs and understanding what causes variation. So I, I think that, we're much closer now than we were five to 10 years ago at being able to teach other labs to, to do these assays really, really well. And, you know, think an example of that would be, you know, I, you know, I had, you know, a visit, you know, a visitor in my lab from, you know, Chantelle Matthews and Lute Overberg's lab, you know, the heart of Anodia, if you will. And, you know, she basically spent the summer in my lab learning how to do tetramer analyses our way. And then she went, you know, back home and ended up, you know, doing a, a major chapter of her dissertation yeah on, yeah, on some touch work so it's it's becoming exportable
0: yeah so, that is, that's yeah. An, that's just an amazing um yeah. shared resource when trainees can actually go to places you know and learn from i, I guess i say from the masters you know of who how do, how they do certain things and then bring it back and incorporate it in their own group it's yeah,
1: and, and yeah and ai has things like travel for techniques and so i would say that i mean if this is something that you feel like is essential for you to do what you want to do um yeah send someone to my lab and i'll teach you i don't i don't mind i mean that's we're, we're a community right
0: i love that it's very good keep up the uh, um amazing work up there in seattle stay safe from all the smoke and um, can't wait to hear um, or to look for that new paper that's uh, coming out of your lab. Really appreciate all you're doing in the field. Well, thanks.
1: And thanks again for the opportunity to present. Great. Those who, those who attended, thank you.